Hello, you're about to enjoy an audio recording from the audio library of Classical Academic Press and Inside Classical Education. More resources can be found on the web at classicalacademicpress.com and insideclassicalet.com. Good afternoon. I'm Christopher Perrin. I think we're here for Loving What Must Be Done. If you've seen the slide and you're still here, it must be the right place. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here uh, to talk about loving what must be done. Who can finish this, this phrase for me? Unless a student decides to learn for himself, how would you like to complete that sentence? Yes. Yes. If you didn't hear him, he will not learn. Or at, the, at least he will not learn well. How many of you are currently are classroom teachers? Okay. How many of you are in, the, in, uh, in a grammar or lower school education? Okay. How many in upper school? Okay. Uh, yes, unless a student decides to learn for himself or herself, uh, learning is going to be quite a frustration. Um, can anyone give a brief report or anecdote of a student that you worked with who, as you were working with them for, or her for a while, uh, was struggling to engage with delight in the material and who had, then who had some kind of a conversionary experience, whether it was a slow conversion or an immediate one, and began to love the subject that you were teaching. Does anyone have an experience like that that comes to mind? Can you think of a student who began to love what you were teaching? Tell me about that. One lesson, a, a, tran- a transformation of some kind that led to a changed year. Compare that to a student who just does not love the material, does not love the class. Um, how far does that student go, even with your best efforts? When you're working with resistant material, it's so much different, isn't it? And yet we spend so much of our time planning curriculum, planning our lessons, planning uh, how we're going to present materials. Of course, we spend an immense amount of time doing grading and assessment and reporting. Um, But how much time do we spend thinking about how we can impart to students a virtue that would love to engage in in study? In other words, isn't it a precondition to learning? If, if it's true that if a student doesn't decide to learn for himself and doesn't love what, what he or she is, is studying, he will, will not go far, then, then maybe, maybe we should spend a lot of our time and attention to imparting these virtues, these educational habits, uh, basically the characteristics of a student. If we can impart what it means to be a student to a student, that student will begin to learn for himself. And we become a different kind of teacher. We'll always be a teacher. But as an educator, aren't we seeking to uh, not just to put ideas into, into young minds and not just to impart skills, but to impart a love of truth? We usually say a love of learning. And I think this is actually a problem. When we say a love of learning, it's a cliche. We want lifelong lovers of learning. Uh, we do want lovers. I think there's something hidden in that cliche and then something that's kind of masked in that cliche. We want lovers, not just minds, not workers. We want lovers. Lovers of what? Lovers, to say lovers of learning, this is where I think the masking occurs. The, to love learning is, uh, sounds, uh, is, is abstract. 
I mean, all these words are abstract, but learning, okay, learning what? It still begs the question, what? And when we keep students engaged in this kind of abstract mush of learning, you're going to be engaged in learning. We're going to give you an education. Uh, We are not, it's not that attractive. And to love something, you must be attracted. You are attracted to the beautiful. Beautiful things attract you. Beauty always draws you to something. And it's precisely that something that we can't clarify very well for our students oftentimes. Much less for ourselves, and perhaps primarily because it's for ourselves, that we can't then incarnate and model for these students what it means to be a lover. Because... The tradition of classical education, liberal arts education, going back to the early church and and drawing from the Greeks and the Romans says that we are to be passionate seekers after truth. Truth that can be acquired, that can be known, and truth that is beautiful because truth goodness and beauty exist in a kind of triad they're like they're like twins uh, the triplets they never they're always together and one leads to the other so uh, the you know church theologians from the past would say that beauty is the radiance of god's truth it's the effulgence of god's truth so if we're encountering truth we're encountering god because god is truth And if we're encountering God and his truth, we're encountering beauty. There's something about it that draws us, attracts us. And I think we need to sit on this concept for a while. We need to meditate on it. We need to re-enter this tradition of seeing truth as beauty. Uh, Think of Psalm 27. One thing I've desired of the Lord, one thing I seek, to sit in his temple and to gaze on his beauty. The very word uh, contemplate means with the temple. I mean, it was a place where the ancient priests would go seeking for, uh, you know, divine signs and omens and so forth. It was a time to wait and to, and to, be, and, and to, and have, and to be spoken unto. So the medieval, uh, our, our medieval brothers and sisters, who are part of our tradition, who are beginning to speak to us again, they said that, you know, the human mind has at least two components. There is this component which they called ratio. Uh, Ratio means comparison and so forth. It's that analytical, we get the word ratio from this, and reason, rationality. It's it's that part of our minds that analyzes and reflects, uh, pulls uh, uh, pulls things apart, Um, spends a lot of time. It's the part of our mind that's a researching mind. But they said there was another part of our, our, our humanity which could be called intellectus. And intellectus is related to another word, intuition. It, of course, we know intellect is uh, understanding. But it was an understanding that came not from analysis, but from gazing. Intuo in, in Latin means to gaze upon. Not just to look, not just to see, but to, but to gaze. So... Do we teach our students to gaze, to look? It's that receptive part of us that needs to go out and experience truth, not just analyze it. Both are very important. There's a book, uh, by the way, I I should say this, uh, I wanted to say this near our beginning. This seminar is not going to be a package. Um, I hate to disappoint you in that regard. It's not going to be tidy. It's not going to be something you can take with you and say, I've got that figured out. Now, imparting the love of learning to my students is a matter of applying this formula. And now I will do it. I see it's a three-step formula. It's not that. But this, this seminar might be, for some of you, a portal into your own reconnection with a part of your tradition that can grow in you and make you a model and, in, and, and an imparter of a of, of a love for the truth. Um, and we'll, we will talk, we will spend some time talking practically about, well, how do you actually do this in the classroom? But before we can move to practices in the classroom, we have to clarify our philosophy. And so we're always in this dialectic as classical educators trying to recover a tradition that wasn't given to us. We're in this dialectic of trying to of clarify what it is, how it works. 
um, how it can change me as a person, and then applying it in the classroom. And so philosophy without practice is pointless, but practice without philosophy is blind. And if we keep thinking, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do, and it's not informed by this tradition in a, in a, in a clarified way, we're, we're going to be highly pragmatic. We're just going to try to make things work from day to day. But we're not going to be, we're not going to have a coherent uh, um, uh, approach to what we're doing with our children. Does that make sense? So I often get um, sometimes, what's the word, uh, um, chided because I am so often in this philosophical area. Uh, people will say, well, that, that, I, that was interesting philosophy, but what do I do in my classroom? And so I may leave some of you a little bit disappointed that way, but I'm going to try to build this bridge to practices. But I want you to know that if you, if you dive deep into this philosophy, this tradition, I think you will start making the applications almost instantly. You will begin to know, oh, I, having thought about this in my third grade class, I think I know what to do now. Does that make sense? So I'm not going to give you a little toolbox of, of, of practical tips to go, to, to, to go do, although we'll explore that a little bit. I want us to become reacquainted with a rich tradition and history that we are only scratching the surface of. We need to, 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 to swim in this. And we, we need to move... Be, let me put it this way, using an analogy. Uh, what we've been doing for about 15 or 20 years is re-entering a tradition that's very rich. And as Chesterton says, we're starting to pay attention to the voices of those who've gone before us. He calls that the democracy of the dead. That just because someone has, suffers from the inconvenient fact that he happens to be dead doesn't mean that he shouldn't speak. So the dead also have a voice, and we're starting to listen to them. Augustine, for example. And we find that he has a lot of wise things to say, even though he lived some 1,700 years ago. His, because ideas, if they are human, never grow old. They're fresh. So if he says that education is teaching children to love those things which are lovely, if that happens to be true to human nature, it's as true today as it was 1,700 years ago. And that's what he said. Education is largely a matter of teaching children to love those things which are lovely. How does that work into your lesson plans? How does that work into third grade math? That is a connection we should be able to make. Well, for about 15 or 20 years, we've been kind of connecting the dots. Uh, and it's a little bit awkward. You know, when you, when, you, when you start to become acquainted with something that has not been yours since infancy and you're trying to, say, play the piano at age 30, uh, you know, you start to wish I had been trained how to play the piano since I was five. But you start, if you want to know the piano, you start at 30. Despite those, the disadvantages that come, it's still a good time to start. But you start connecting the dots, and it's, or you're painting by numbers, and it, it's, it's a little awkward, right? So for me to stand up and talk to you about this tradition of loving those things which is lovely as a primary part of what education is, having not been awash in it all my life, I might feel a little bit like I'm just kind of working off of an outline. But it's not, it's not been bred into my soul. So I can't incarnate it the way I would if I had been nursed on this from my youth. Does that make sense? We are the generation that is building the bridge again. So we will always feel the sense of dissatisfaction, of not having had this since our use. Uh, but there's some studies, and I'll just go empirical here for a moment. Uh, you may have read about uh, the 10,000 hours that uh, 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 Malcolm Gladwell talks about in, I think, his book Outliers where he says that studies show that if you're going to be truly accomplished at anything, at the highest level, say a violin player, if you want to be a virtuoso violin player, you will have to practice for 10,000 hours. That's three hours a day for 10 years. And they've done studies, and it, indicates, it seems to be uh, somewhat common across other professions and disciplines. You want to be good at French? You want to be good at Latin? You want to be you mean, at the highest level? Put in 10,000 hours. That's what it takes to shape a human soul. 
How much time does the average child watch television a day? Five hours a day watching television. Add screen time and other computer time. That's the American curriculum. That's that in addition to the mall and to sports and so on and other things. And is shaping our human are shaping our students far more than you and I standing in front of a whiteboard. So five hours a day, gosh, that's, give that five years, five or six years, they've got their 10,000 hours in front of a television. And you're, you're having them recite math facts? So uh, we ourselves are trying to recover this. And, and so it's terribly important that we spend time having our own souls nurtured. We have to have our own souls knit even at age 30 or 40 or 50, whenever we start, to, be, to be start drinking these waters ourselves and to learn what it means to be a lover of the truth. And that's part of the classical tradition, that wonder came before wisdom and love came before critique. So you know when the grammar school, come, grammar school kids come into your classes, um, they come in with full of awe and wonder, ready to, to, to sing the praises of the things they encounter. You know what it's like if you're a grammar school teacher, if you've been one or seen one. Um, you know, you can come into a third grade class and say, guess what, kids, this year we're going to be studying botany. Yay, we're studying botany. We're going to be studying Sanskrit. Yay, we're studying Sanskrit. Mrs. Jones says we're studying Sanskrit. What is Sanskrit? Because they trust you. And they're filled with awe, and they believe that you are not a blind guide, but a sighted guide who has seen beautiful things, and that you are going to take them on a journey, and you are going to show them this beauty. And they, too, are going to be able to swim in it. They're going to put it in their pocket. They're going to put it in their breast. That's what they believe and think, because they're made in the image of God, and they're made to worship, and they're made to wonder and awe and to give praise. And wherever there is beauty... There is praise. Whenever you think something is beautiful, what do you do? You have to talk about it. And you need to be, you need to be with someone else. Say, that movie was fantastic. Have you seen Inception? The cinematography was amazing. And we start to praise the things that we think are beautiful. And kids are prone to praise. Why is it that by the time they get to 7th or 8th or ninth grade, they don't do that anymore? Why have they stopped being lovers Why have they stopped being filled with awe and wonder? And the ancients thought that wonder is what led to wisdom. Love to wisdom. It's built right in the word philosophia. To be a lover of wisdom. And uh, our our forebearers thought that even the study of, of mathematics was a way of acquiring wisdom. That even the study of, of the natural world was a way of cultivating your humanity. But we think we're making workers. We want to give people skills, and they're important. We want to give people skills so they can get a job, to be functionaries in our social democracy. That's the modern view. So these, in my view, are the fundamental things that apply as time goes by, to quote Humphrey Bogart from Casablanca, Yes, he too is a classical forebearer. I'm just kidding. Uh, but that applied to, to what we're doing in the educa- our educational endeavor as classical educators. What are the fundamental things? We must be deep, deep in the fundamental things. We must have our own souls cultivated. We must be, we must be cultivated souls if we are going to cultivate souls. So what I'd like to do now, with that as my introduction, is I want to give you a, a rubric to compare what's happening, what we're trying to do in our classical schools with what's over against what's going on in our modern schools. And then I want to come back to going on in modern education, progressive education. Then I want to come back to this idea of what is a soul? What is a human being? How do we teach them? And we're going to explore that for a little bit, and then we're going to try to go practical talk about what are the specific virtues that need to be imparted to students that would incorporate them being lovers. Loving not just what must be done, but loving the whole, the, the whole endeavor of, of being 
humans, ed educated humans. So let's take a look at uh, a rubric here. First, this is, uh, I'm sorry, I better, better decide where I'm going to position myself here. Uh, this is Augustine in, in, in the Confessions. So I guess that'll be all right. Um, and and the, the ancients are going to see everything wrapped up in love. It's one of the main theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. Uh, right? If we have not love, we're a clanging symbol. God is love. It's the primary thing. God loved us. We respond to him in love. And education has to be swallowed up in God's love for us and our response of love to him. Okay, well, here's a rubric for you. Um, right now in our culture, we're trying to piece together what, what education should be. We're always asking the question as a nation, how can we reform our, our, our educational system? The trouble is, is we don't have the box top for the puzzle anymore. Um, you know, it's hard to put, can you imagine having a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle and, uh, and only to discover that you've lost the box top? Uh, it'd be much more difficult. So we need to recover, as it were, the box top that's been handed down to us from our forebears. Because, as the story goes, about 100 years ago, this particular, uh, this particular paradigm for education, the liberal arts or classical approach, began to, 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 to fragment and diminish. It never completely went away. We haven't, even in, our, even in the most progressive schools, there are, there are elements of the classical liberal arts approach to this day. And even in the most classical of our schools, there are still modern elements as well. So don't think of it as a binary either or. Think of it as a continuum. Where are you on this continuum? And how deeply are you connected to the tradition? And how intelligently are you interacting with what's happened and with modern education as well? And by the way, public education isn't bad because it's public. You can go to the nation of Burundi where their public education system is all Christian. So it's other things that have, have come into education that have made it problematic. So we're trying to put the pieces back together again and we're finding it difficult. So as we start to do our reading and, and, uh, and recovering, we see that there is, there is a, a box top out there. And there are different ways of, there's a lot of different ways of organizing information to portray, portray this. This is just one kind of metaphor, if you will. But you can see that there's at least 11, uh, 12 elements here that, that I've listed for you. Um, and let me show you another version of this slide. Uh, you can see that, well, let me put it this way. Every school, every educational approach has to answer four questions, among others. Who is the student? What is the student? What is the curriculum? What are we going to teach this student after we figured out what a student is? And what's the school going to be, be like? How are we going to characterize the school as a community or institution? The third row here. And then, of course, the larger question, the fourth question is, well, what's the purpose of it all? Why are we doing education? Every educational system has to, ans ask, has to address these issues. And so the, the classical tradition has some answers to what a student is, what a human being is. Um, so it's a soul-focused approach to the student. It's embodied as well. In other words, the human body was considered to be uh, very important and, and uh, in a, in, uh, just as important as the soul. And then scholar or leisure just meant that, that the way a, st a student is meant as a human being to engage in reflecting on who God is and who he is and giving glory back to God in every aspect of his being. And that's he was going to be transformed into the image of Christ uh, not just by meditating on scripture, but by engaging God himself in creation and in, and in community. That's uh, a, Greek, uh, a Greek word, skole, gets at that, which we'll, I'll talk about a little bit later. And, of course, the curriculum. You're fairly familiar with the classical approach to curriculum, the seven liberal arts, among some other things. Uh, pedagogical uh, methods that come from uh, the classical tradition and a focus on that which is uh, the best that's been thought and said or the great ideas, the great conversation. And then, of course, there's uh, issues of community. Well, what do we do? We, what, what, how is this curriculum situated? Well, it's situated in a community and that has been, community is classical. 
I used to think of community as kind of being just kind of um, an important thing to consider because we are in community and we need to think about making sure we're keeping our relationships strong and so forth. But the more, uh, the more we have studied the tradition of classical education, we see that community was, was thought to be integral with the whole approach that how how we how we how we gather and live as human beings is all is all is, is integrally related to everything else we do. We learn in community and we go nowhere alone. C.S. Lewis says. So the idea of paideia comes in here. Paideia is the concept of full enculturation. It's an almost untranslatable Greek word. It means childing at its root. It comes from pais paidos, this idea of taking a child from infancy and so enculturating that child over many years that uh, he would be able to be a fully functioning citizen in the community. It's ecclesial. It's traditional. The church has been very much connected to it. There's, we're paying attention to the people who have gone before us. And then, of course, in terms of purpose, there's vocation. There's a liberated mind fully equipped after, after having studied the, art, the liberal arts, uh, renewable and renewing, seeking to make and do culture. All right, so there's a rubric for you. Um, here's the, and, and where we're going to focus in, in, in this talk, where would you guess if we're talking about helping a student to love that which is lovely, which of these puzzle pieces seem to, seem to be appropriate to cover that particular question? Up here, first left? Yes, soul focus is certainly going to be a key one there. Um, how, how do we educate students as souls? That's going to be really key. Uh, Scole is going to kind of overlap with that too, but I think you're right. The first top left is maybe the one that's most germane. Now, in our culture, we have uh, another view. This is uh, the modern box top. By the way, I'd be happy to send this to you if you're thinking, if you get, uh, get a little bit tired of trying to write everything down, just email me at cperrin at classicalsubjects.com. Let me put that up briefly. I think I have it here somewhere. There it is. So if you email me, I'll be happy to send you these graphics. Take a look at that, this image here for a moment. You can see how it lines up with the same four columns, same four rows. Now I'd like you to do this as a kind of thought experiment. Are there any ways in which your school might, might be typified by some of these categories? And now, it's, it, these are high-level categories, so you might be wondering what's really beneath them. You have to have to choose just one or two words to put on each piece. But look at the student. We tend to focus on the student as in a child-centered way, child-centered education, which means we want to make sure that we're uh, catering to the child's wishes. Uh, we want the child to feel like uh, this is fun. This is uh, this is this is something that he really wants, and we we want students to 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 do what they want to do in school. So why not let the child kind of lead the curriculum? What are you what are you interested in studying? Oh, is that right? Okay, well let's do that. There are some schools that let the students themselves determine the whole curriculum, even in the upper school. What do you want to study today? And the teachers are like facilitators or guides to to help them do that. Um, but Paying attention to what the students want is pretty important today. Entertaining, amusing, uh, that just fits right in with a, a child's uh, desire to please the child uh, and, and, and respond to his will. We want, uh, we want kids to be amused and entertained. The Greek word musia meant to be inspired. The Greek word amusia meant to be without inspiration. What English word do we get from amusia? Amusement. And the five-hour-a-day curriculum that students are watching, the television, is certainly uh, conditioning them to want uh, the kind of entertainment and, and amusement that our televisions bring to, to folks. So is it any surprise that uh, modern progressive curricula is starting to conform and look more and more like the television? 
and then uh, we, 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 students are engaged in uh, lots of activity, leading to lots of anxiety. How many subjects are your third graders tracking at one time? Sometimes it's eight or nine, if you include you know, some of the electives or chorus and some other things. How many of you have to track eight or nine important projects at all times in your life? Is there any surprise that our students are anxious and, and do not come home thinking about the love of beauty? <laughs> um, and if you're preparing and teaching five or six of those subjects, is it any surprise that uh, thinking of things like loving truth tends to be a flitting cliche that flits in and out of your brains? Because we don't have time. We have scheduled ourselves out of the possibility of reflecting on truth, goodness, and beauty. We are like Martha running around when Mary is at the feet of Jesus. We, we don't give our kids the opportunity to sit either. They work because they're going to be workers themselves like you. So, James K. A. Smith in his book, and when I said this seminar is kind of like a portal, I want to introduce you to the, the, your tradition. James K. A. Smith has captured very powerfully the tradition that says that we are, 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 are not just minds in a vat who need to be uh, filled up with ideas, the right ideas, even good ideas, which he says is fine to, to believe and hear and receive the good ideas. But we are more effective lovers. That's who we are as human beings, even more than being intellects. We are lovers. We are passionate lovers seeking an ideal of human flourishing. And that happens not just with our, our mind disengaged from our bodies. It happens through our bodies and our five senses. So the television and the mall, for example, are shaping our children to love a certain ideal, a certain kingdom. And it's making them, it's helping them, it's cultivating a desire for a kingdom. And you're standing in in front of your whiteboard teaching a history timeline. Even though they're chanting and singing it, it's not as powerful as what's happening in our culture. The people who design the mall know what they're doing. You go into the mall and you're going in to worship. You come into a cathedral where there's a worship guide. And then you follow that guide. And of course you're traveling with a fellow worshiper. You never go to the mall alone. And you go to the various chapels where there are icons and statues. Iconography. uh, Emblemizing for you the ideal of human flourishing and the right vestments that you should wear. And exchange, of course, every week or month or two months. They're always changing, but there they are for you is the ideal. And you come in, you make your purchase, and there's a kind of Eucharistic exchange. And not only are there images, there are sounds, there's music. And as you go in from one chapel to the next, the music changes. It's appropriate music. So if you're over 40 like me, you go into a, a, a store like even the supermarket, and they're playing the goldie goodies. You know, I'm hearing all my high school music when I'm, when I'm in the grocery store, because who goes to the grocery store? It's the 30, the 40, the 50-year-olds, and they're playing our music. And not only music, but, but aroma. I mean, it's all there. All five senses are there for you. How do you like it when your daughter says, can I go to the mall? Can you drop me off at the mall? What do they come back with? A desire. Desires, many desires for the things that are going to make them the kinds of priests and priestesses in our culture that the mall says we should be. George. It's amazing. Some of the stores now are giving you samples to taste, too. Not only do you smell That's it, right. a lot of them have little stands where you can sample things. So you can go buy this. It's down this aisle. You can get it. So yeah. And giving you the taste. Right. So Smith says that this, these things form us, they shape us. And he calls them formative liturgies, secular liturgies, because they're forming us, shaping us, and predisposing us to a, a, a kingdom that's secular. Sports does this, TV does that. I mean, when I say sports, I don't mean sports in the general sense, but our, our idolatry of sports. How many students decide they want to leave the classical Christian school in ninth grade to go play soccer at the local public school? 
where they may be experiencing paideia, their soul may be shaped, even if it's not you know, as full-throated as we would like, they're being shaped uh, via paideia in these classical Christian schools where we're trying to renew paideia, we're trying to renew shaping of souls and create lovers of truth, goodness, and beauty. And they want to go play soccer because, this, and this has happened to me as when I was head of school, uh, we think that Johnny might be able to play soccer at the college level. His coach thinks he's really great. Oh, are you going to leave because... Or there's a great drama program over at the other school. So these things are calling these kids athletics, entertainment. All the values of them all are pulling our kids and shaping our kids. The iPods, music. Music is having a tremendous impact. What kind of music are our kids listening to? If it's, if it's beautiful to them, it's, it's attracting them to something, some ideal of what that beauty is. And it may not be the beauty that Augustine was talking about. And we stand in front of our whiteboards, and we do chants and songs. Right? And we, we get into our upper school classes, and, we, and we, we try to discuss and debate. We're doing the right things. But, but, but where is the soul in all of this? In other words, it's, it's a matter of balance and proportion. All of our pedagogy should be funneled through our anthropology, which is governed by our theology. James K. A. Smith said this. He says, every anthropology, which means your view of man, what is a human? Every anthropology presupposes and expresses, and every pedagogy, excuse me, every pedagogy, teaching method, assumes and expresses an anthropology. You Watch a teacher for a, a week and you will know what she believes about human beings what she thinks they are and what they need <sighs> so i just give you that as a rubric that's the tension that we're in and we're in the midst of this recovery and we will be uh, none of us are there yet we're, none of us are perfect I created a chart that, that shows uh, puts these as poles but what I really wanted to do is help schools to see this, if I can get this. Huh. There we go. So if you were to look at all of these 12 areas, starting with the student, I'll, I'll be very quick about this. You know, you might, you might look at, this is soul-focused and uh, child-centered. You could look at all of these different categories, and you could, you could, as a staff team, you could go through these and say, where, where do we land, you know? Do we tend to be, um, you know, more focused on entertainment and amusement than we are on embodying education in our school through everything that we do? Uh, all, the, all the way the school is conceived of physically. And you, you might be surprised as, as to where you seem to be more classical and more progressive. And we're all blends. None of us are, no one's going to be all over here or all over here. That can be an interesting um, kind of heuristic exercise. Okay, so let's go back to the soul, shall we? I won't go through these. That was, that was just a, a, this is just another version of those, those 12 elements being compared. I do want to make you aware of a couple of resources right now. These will be up here on the table after we finish. This book called The Great Tradition is a book that everyone should have in this room. Because it's, it acquaints you with your tradition via the primary sources. I wish I had gotten this book. I wish this book had been available when I first came into the classical renewal some 15 years ago. Richard Gamble has gathered together everyone from Plato to Sayers. Uh, excerpts. About how many pages is it? It's, um, it's 600 pages. You don't want to read it all in one semester, but you know you start, start thumbing through it. Start with, some, start with Plato and Aristotle and move through. You will be enriched by this because you will be encountering your brothers and sisters from the past in their own tongue, in their own words, not just reading about them from someone else, 
but reading them. And because these are classic writings, they're profoundly accessible and profoundly edifying. So this book is really worth getting. This book is, an, is, the, is called The Intellectual Life by A.G. Sertelange. And he wrote this in the 1940s, I believe, if I recall. French monk. But he's, he's, he's basically summarizing what it means to acquire educational virtues. And I was so surprised when I read this to know that for centuries, educators have been thinking about this and writing about this. For centuries, educators have realized that unless we can impart to students educational virtues, or the intellectual virtues, the virtues of a student, student virtues, we are spinning our wheels. That's why you said to me at the beginning of the seminar that if a student doesn't decide to learn for himself, he really doesn't learn much at all. But once he or she says, I want to learn, I love this, they will take off and you become a coach. That's what you want. That's when teaching is fun. But that means you have to kindle the fire. Kids come in 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 the younger years as soft wax. They're easily shaped. You grammar school teachers, one of the ways you lead the entire school, and sometimes schools miss this, they think, oh, the upper school is kind of the leading edge of the school. That's where you see the fruit of it. That's when the painting's completed. And they're so smart and they're so wise. And our upper school teachers have these multiple degrees and they're really intellectual and so forth. But the kids are dead. They've lost their sense of wonder and awe and love. And it's all analysis. The way the grammar school leads, if when things are going well, is that it's that throbbing, pulsing light of wonder and awe and celebration and joy. And the grammar school teachers are full of it themselves and they're kindling it. And those kids, if, and Plato says this, we'll look at this in a moment, when these kids are so predisposed this way when they're young, they will stay that way when they are old. You can shape them so much easily then. When a kid comes into a classical school in 8th or ninth grade without that, it's a, you need a bigger fire to warm the wax. It's harder work. So thank you to the grammar school teachers who know how to do this and bring us kids into the upper school who have not lost their wonder and their delight in truth, goodness, and beauty. Yes, they're becoming more intellectual, but they have loved before they have started to critique. And then those students will lead the rest of the upper school. They will model and incarnate wonder to wisdom to worship in the entire upper school. So the grammar school is critical in this regard. He gets to this tradition. This book by Joseph uh, uh, Pieper, German theologian, also writing in the 40s. Where do these guys come from? French and Germans in the 40s, you know, right after the war? Uh, But he says that scole or leisure is the basis of culture. Just read the first 80 pages of this. The first 80 pages of this It's only a 150-page book. It'll be kind of deep going, but you'll get it. After about an hour of learning his syntax, your world will be rocked. I'm going to give you just a taste of him in a moment. He's really worth getting. And then finally, these couple books. uh, Beauty for Truth's Sake, um, Stratford Caldecott on the the re-enchantment of education. Another 150-page book. Basically, he shows that math is beautiful. I wish someone had showed me that math was beautiful. I thought of it, math to me was a functionary skill so that I could make change at the cash register. If you understand that math is beautiful, if you've come to see that math is beautiful and you're a third grade teacher or a ninth grade teacher, it'll change everything because math is a humanity. Math puts you in touch with God himself. It's remarkable. This, this book has rocked my world. If I had read this, I would have been a different person. My humanity was stunted because I, I learned cookbook functional mathematics. But it's a sacred subject. I wish I could say more about that, but you have to go to Ravi Jain's seminar. He's, uh, he'll take poetic knowledge. This is getting at the intellectus side of the mind. We come to know truth not just by analysis, not just by the scientific method, but by interacting and engaging and encountering God's truth in other ways besides just the analytic, the poetic. How much time do we have? Because I'm thinking of another anecdote here. We have five minutes left? Is, is it almost 2.30? Is it going to 2.20? 2.20. 2.20. 
I go to 2.20. Oh, rats. I was thinking I had 60 minutes. In that case, I won't tell you the little story. I'm glad I asked. But I still have to mention this book because... Unless you go and read these books, this seminar has, won't, won't have done its uh, job. The Abolition of Man, where he talks about what it means to be a person who is an effective lover of truth. Short book by, by C.S. Lewis. Okay, let's return to the soul. What is a human after all? Um, what is a student? <clears throat> if uh, James K. Smith is right, whatever a human is, is going to determine how we teach. It's going to determine our community and how we do culture. How do we impart this virtue of loving uh, what must be done? It's got to be soul formation. And this means it's not going to be by a particular lesson plan. It's going to be by incarnation and imitation. That means you incarnate it, you model it. This is something you model more than anything else as a teacher. You are enchanted by the things that you teach. And that, and that is, if that is happening, it's going to come through. And they are going to want to see the beauty that you see. Luke 6 picks up on this. Don't be a blind guide, because then you will lead your student into a pit. Jesus says, when a student has been fully trained, he will be just like his student, his teacher. And the teacher must be pulling out the plank from his own eye. This is the passage that follows immediately from that one. Until he can pull out the speck from his student's eye. So we're always repentant. We're always seeking to see better ourselves. We're speaking about our eyes here so that we will be sighted guides so that we can, we can show students the beauty and we can take them with us. They can follow. We're, essentially, it's a journey. We're talking about guiding. We are going on a voyage. We're going on a journey. We have seen what they haven't seen and we won't stop until they can see what we see so that they can get a good job. No, so that they can be a human being fully alive, made in God's image, redeemed by his son. That's what education is, teaching them to love that which is lovely. The nourishment of their soul by contemplation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If this sounds to you like abstract philosophy, which it did to us all when we first heard it, you need to taste it. You need to be acquainted with it. Um, it's going to take time. It's going to take partnerships. It might mean a little less television. It might mean parents who are also growing in this as well, so that the home is reflecting what you're doing in the school. It's a journey. So what starts to happen with students, when they begin to see, say, mathematics, is actually connecting them to the mind of God and to the world around them. When they begin to see unity and plurality, when they begin to see the ways in which um, innate nature reflects mathematics, miraculously, it's like its own incarnation. All these ratios, the golden mean and so forth, they start, we start seeing them in shapes of nature. And you begin to realize that mathematics is, actually fits the world. It's like its own incarnation. It's beautiful. You take, you take, for example, a plate and vibrate it with harmonious chords. And the sand on the plates forms beautiful images that they don't form unless the vibrations are mathematical harmonies. It's the incarnation. If you can do that for children, mathematics is going to become a humanity for them. And they are going to be motivated out of love for who God is and for the world he's made. And their job will come later as a secondary issue. So, they will begin then, therefore, what I was going with this is that then... Doing math facts and other things you do in math that require focus and attention. Like any athlete, you have to do drills, you have to run laps. What's going to be animating that whole thing is love for the truth. They're going to see it not just, not just so that I can get something done. Yes, there's work involved. That There's great things we'll be able to do in the world. Mathematics actually does work. But more than that, they're going to be motivated by the inherent beauty in the whole process and how it fulfills them as a human being made in, image, in the image of God. That becomes the primary thing. Then they shoot off and you're just steering. Isn't that beautiful? And you've seen this happen with some of your students. Therefore, how, what can we do 
to make this one of the primary things we do as educators. Because if we have a class of 15 kids who are or all passionate lovers, how would you like to teach that class? We haven't seen this before for a long time. We're starting to see it. How much time do I have left? One minute. Okay. So let me summarize. I have a few more slides here that I won't be able to show you. But the summary then is we cannot cultivate souls and impart this virtue, which is to love truth and seek truth as passionate lovers, unless we ourselves are being transformed into these lovers. That doesn't happen alone. To quote C.S. Lewis again, we go nowhere alone. It always happens in community. So what if, as you guys go back to your schools, you, you take some of these books, and you, don't try and read them all in a semester, but you say, you know, we're going to read The Abolition of Man, first semester. We're going to read the first 80 pages of, of Peeper, second semester. And we're going to, in our staff meetings, not just talk about how to handle recess better and so forth and all the things that we have to do. But we're going to talk about how our own souls can be cultivated. Because even if it has nothing to do with your lesson plans, right? Like you're, you're starting to study, uh, study how mathematics reflects the mind of God. And you think, yeah, I don't know how this is going to connect to what I do with Saxon math or Singapore math. I don't, don't worry about that. Let your own soul be cultivated and become a lover of the truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are not uh, able ourselves to do these things. Lewis is right. We go nowhere alone. We, we remember Chesterton saying that we have to give uh, the dead uh, their own voice and can we connect ourselves to the tradition and hear them speaking to us as well. We hear Augustine saying that we should nourish the souls of our children and teach them to love those things which are lovely. We hear the word in verse in Proverbs that says, If we instruct a child in the way in which he, he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. O oh Lord, we ourselves are pulled in so many directions. We ourselves suffer from uh, activity-laden lies. We are also filled with anxiety from time to time. And we need what Pieper calls scole, that opportunity, that time to reflect and to think and to and to gaze on beauty and truth and goodness and to have it fill our souls. Lord, it sounds so mystical to some of us. It sounds so detached. It sounds so otherworldly, so impractical. Uh, So we need your guidance and help to recover this wisdom from those who have gone before us. We ask you to help us because we are in such great need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. If you want to engage me further on some of the practical stuff we didn't get to, I'd be happy to talk to you further. Thank you.